Well, we started a couple of weeks ago a new sermon series. What, what does it mean to be part of a church? What does that look like? And we talked a couple of weeks ago, or uh, last week, I suppose, about is sometimes, imagine for a moment, some of you I know, you've been going to church your whole life long. Now, that's my story. I've always uh, been part of a church in one way or another. And so sometimes it's a little bit hard to maybe remember or realize that for some people, coming into a church is a very strange experience. Actually, the Apostle Paul, in, uh, when he writes to the Corinthian church, says, you know, it's weird what we do together. I'm very much paraphrasing, by the way. This is the translation of Ian. But he's, it's really weird. As a matter of fact, there are some times where if a person walked into the church, they would think, you're all crazy and leave. So a uh, couple of things I want to make us aware of the fact that when people come into church, there may be a learning curve that we want to help them with and to welcome them into. And secondly, if you didn't grow up in a church, if church is something new to you, or maybe we belong to a particular tradition within Christianity, we, we identify ourselves, and I hope the Lord identifies us this way as all, first as followers of Jesus Christ. But secondly, also as Presbyterians, even though the name of the church is Lemon Cove Community Church, we are still a Presbyterian church, and there's a lot that's good about our tradition. I joked with somebody the other day, you know, you would, you know, you're a wonderful Christian. You'd be even better if you were just a Presbyterian, and I'm totally joking when I say that, mostly joking when I say, no, I'm, I'm definitely joking when I say that, but we believe these things to really be true and good. There are some things as Presbyterians where we would say, we, no, we really believe this is true, and different Christians may think differently about it. This isn't a belief that makes us a Christian versus a non-Christian, but you know, we still believe this is true, and we teach it. Some of the things we're going to talk about this morning fall into that bucket. As Presbyterians, here is what we specifically believe, and we really believe it's true and worth teaching, but we will keep fellowship with people even if they don't do exactly these same things. And I'll try and point out those moments during the service. Now, there are other things at the same time where we say this is clearly what all Christians everywhere either do or ought to believe. And I'll try and identify those moments as well. So one of the weird things that Christians do is we baptize and we get baptized, right? Uh, now, if you're here this morning, I imagine most of you have probably been baptized at some point in your life. And part of what I want to do for you is to remind you of why that's so significant. I want to remind you and, and maybe even teach you for the first time exactly what your baptism was all about. And then if you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized, I would like to point you to the truth that as Christians we need to be baptized. It's, it's not optional. Now, I don't mean that baptism saves us. Only Jesus saves us. But in the New Testament, there is no one and nothing that ever imagines that there would be a Christian who chooses to not be baptized. I'm going to try and show you that as well. I have so much to do this morning. We better get right onto it. So first of all, why? 
Why do we baptize? And let me give you just something really, really practical. It's not maybe as satisfying as you might like uh, because it doesn't explain uh, why baptism is so good, just why we ought to do it. Jesus said so. Jesus said so. So that's my first, you know, as parents, we have children, and sometimes our children keep asking us questions, and eventually we say, because I said so. And it's not because we want them to stay in that place of just doing it because we said so, but you know what? At this point, we can't have this conversation anymore. Like, well, it'll not turn out well for all of us. I said so. That's got to be good enough for now. Jesus said so. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus' last words to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Jesus' last words to his apostles included the command to baptize. And we could turn that around. Jesus' last words that are recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew tell us we all ought to be baptized. Baptize. Now, again, that doesn't explain to us much about baptism except that Jesus thinks it's a pretty good idea, good enough to command it, and for all of us who are followers of Jesus, if we're really following Jesus, we're going to do what he says. So that's where we're going to start. But the second place we're going to go is we're going to observe, again, all the people in the New Testament, when they are converted, when they become Christians, they get baptized. You have Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He believes, and right away they start baptizing. You have uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, or a little bit earlier in the book of Acts. Philip meets this guy. He's on his way back down to Ethiopia, we believe, and they start talking about faith, and Philip tells them all about Jesus, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? Look, there's water everywhere. Let's get this done. The Philippian jailer, again in the book of Acts, Paul and his, travel, and his buddy, they're in prison. They've been put there because they've been telling people about Jesus. There's a big earthquake. All the cell doors open. They, everyone could escape, and the jailer knows that it's his life for the, the lives of the people who escape. If they escape, he's going to be killed. So he gets ready to commit suicide because that's the only way to save face. I don't encourage any of that. But he, that's what he decides he's going to do. And Paul yells out, don't do it. We're all still here. And the, excuse me, the Philippian jailer comes before Paul and he falls down on his face and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, well, repent and be baptized. And that's what they do right away. All the people who become Christians in Scripture get baptized. So now, who is it exactly that is eligible for this? We know if, if we are Christians, we should be baptized. But let's, get, let's dig down even a little bit more. So first, and I'm going to be borrowing quite a bit, by the way, uh, of course, from Scripture. We're going to get specifically to Scriptures about baptism in a moment, but also from our own book of confessional standards, and specifically the Westminster standards. Now, these are several hundred years old. They're by, considered by many to be sort of the premier statement of what it means to be reformed in your theology, which Presbyterians are. If you don't understand what any of these things mean, that's okay. Let me summarize it to you this way. Here are some wise statements about what Christians believe. Okay. Got two pages. There are actually many more pages than this, but I'm not going to go through the whole thing with you today. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> 
So the Westminster Standards, uh, when they talk about who should be baptized, they say everyone in the visible church, which is a way of saying basically everyone in this building. If you have confessed your faith, baptism is what you should do. Secondly, uh, we are, in the Reformed traditions, people who baptize infants. This is a specifically Reformed belief. Good Christians can baptize infants, and I think they should, but there are lots of good Christians out there who believe we ought not to baptize infants as well. So this is one of those things where Christians may disagree. There's a better answer and a worse answer maybe, but we haven't been able to work it out to everyone's satisfaction yet. But let me tell you a little bit about why we baptize infants. First of all, we don't baptize any infants. It would be wrong for us to go into the maternity ward of the hospital and start throwing water around and be like, ha, ah, I got that one and I got that one. Woo, we baptized all the infants. We would never, ever do this. <laughs> I feel like I should drop the mic and just walk off the stage right now. Uh, but the reason we do this is because, or who we would baptize, are people who belong to the family of faith, even if it's just by blood. Now again, that baptism doesn't save those children. Doesn't mean, oh, you know, we baptize them, so now they're right with God. Instead, we baptize them in acknowledgement of the covenant God has made with us, his covenant people. It's like, and as a matter of fact, the Bible compares baptism to the Old Testament practice of circumcision. So let me take you, first of all, to Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. I'm sorry, actually, yeah, that's correct. Genesis 17, verse 7. I just bookmarked Genesis chapter 7 for some reason. God is speaking to Abram. He hasn't had his name changed yet to Abraham, but they're the same guy. And he says this, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So you see, what God is promising to Abraham is very, or Abram in this case, is very much a family promise. Remember, what, what was part of God's covenant promise to Abram? Family, right? children. God says, when you have children, speaking to Abraham and through Abraham, even to us, that's on purpose from me. I've given you your children, and your hope and expectation ought to be that they remain in this covenant community. And so three verses later, Genesis 17, 10, God says to Abraham, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now to our 21st century mind, that doesn't seem very fair, does it? God's going to include these people in this religion, even though these people, they haven't made a decision for themselves. But again, our children are God's children. He gives us our children. And he has the right to make some determination about who they are and who they will be. Now, this is the Old Testament picture, but it continues into the New Testament. The bookmark has fallen out here, but it's in, we're going to now Colossians chapter 2. 
Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at uh, verses 11 to 12. In Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. How? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See, the New Testament makes this connection between circumcision and baptism. Now again, Not every Christian is going to follow what I'm teaching this morning, but this is the teaching of our church and of our tradition. I think it's right. I'm giving you my thoughts on that. If you want to continue this conversation later, happy to do that. But for right now, I've got the floor, so I'm going to continue because we've got a lot of other places to go. So we baptize our children, our infants, not just, not just adults who believe. There's another reason for this as well. Who is the primary mover in our baptism? Is it I who decide to be baptized or God who brings me to that conviction I ought to be baptized? Is the value and significance of my baptism primarily in what I proclaim? Or in what God proclaims over me. Now we're going to come to Romans chapter 6. What does baptism actually do for us? Well, Paul in Romans 6 is answering an argument that some people were making. You Christians are bad people. Why? Why are Christians? Well, because you say that grace covers your sins. There's nothing you can do about it. God just has to forgive you. But isn't that just going to make you say, I should just keep on sinning because then God will forgive me more and everyone will see more of how forgiving God is. And then I'll sin more and God will forgive more and I'll sin more and God will forgive more. And what a wonderful situation that we're in where I can sin as much as I want and God gets all the glory for my sin. And Paul responds in Romans chapter 6. Actually, if you read this in Greek, there's a double negative here. In in English, you've heard me say this before if you've been here, but but in English, a double negative becomes a positive, right? I'm not not rooting for the 49ers today. (laughs) means I actually am rooting for the 49ers. I'll let you decide whether or not that's true. (laughs) But in Greek, a double negative is emphatic. It's sort of like Paul saying, and I'm going to bang around a bit here, no, no, no. Shall we continue sinning so that grace may increase? No. Paul wants to be as clear as possible. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You've completely misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. And then he gives us an example to show that we really do believe this way. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Who's the primary mover in your baptism? 
What is the power that's at work there? Is it your own capacity to decide and proclaim? Is that the primary thing? Is that what Paul's describing about, about, about baptism? No, Paul's saying when you are baptized, there is a real and living and vital connection to the truth of your faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you go under the water, when you are washed with the water, it's as if you really die. You are vitally connected to the death of Jesus Christ. When you come back up, when that water leaves you clean, it's communicating to you not just, well, this is sort of like being clean, but this is, you are really being connected to the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are really rising to a new sort of life. That's why Paul says this, this question, you know, should we continue to sin so that grace may increase, it, it's total nonsense for the Christian. Because when we were baptized, not only were we proclaiming these things to be true, but we were actually experiencing the truth of these things. We were actually being connected to the truth of these things. In Eco, our essential tenets say the sacraments, which are the Lord's Supper and baptism are signs that are linked to what they signify, which is a clearly and deeply reformed belief about all of these things as well. Now, I feel even more strongly about this than I do about infant baptism. This is really what's going on. Baptism is primarily an act of God in our lives with which we cooperate. But there are good, God-loving Christians who would say, no, Ian, I don't really think that's what's happening here. So, just want to be clear. Again, I'm absolutely teaching baptism does these things. But there are Christians, good Christians, who teach something a little bit different. And I'll leave it to them to articulate what all those things are. In baptism, we really die with Jesus. In baptism, we really receive the seal of our resurrection so that we will rise with Jesus. As a result, our baptism is the promise from God that we can live free of sin. And I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. Is that a little overwhelming here at the moment? Our baptism is the promise that we can live freed from sin. And God's people, especially in these days, have a hard time believing we really can live freed from sin. So, who do we, what is, why do we baptize? Jesus said to do it. And now we know even more because it's actually a real link to the truth of our faith that reminds and encourages us and empowers us to really live as God's people. We baptize adults who profess their faith in Jesus Christ. We baptize children because they belong to, not children, infants, because they belong to God's covenant people. And we expect as a result of that baptism, they receive a gift from God that leads them to faith. Not as if we were compelling God, hey God, bad news, we baptized that kid, so whatever your plans are, you gotta put them in. But instead, God, we expect that in your goodness and in your grace and through our faithfulness, you will bring our children to faith. Now, if you are here this morning and you didn't baptize your children, 
want to tell you two things. The first is that God is not going, he's not looking for a way to get out of making your children believers. They haven't missed on God's grace forever. And keep being faithful in loving them and lovingly pointing them toward Jesus. And God will honor that. Secondly, actually, you know, I'm just going to leave it at that. I think that's good enough. We don't need a secondly. Now, in what manner do we undergo baptism? Because uh, in our tradition, and I wouldn't just say, does anyone want to be baptized and then start throwing water on people? I wouldn't do that. There's a reason. Uh, the reason is that baptism is something that the church does. Remember all those uh, examples I cited out of the book of Acts, right? Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Paul and the Philippian jailer, Peter and uh, Cornelius in his household. There is something happening there uh, where it, it wasn't just a random act. Like they said, oh, well, you know, we can baptize however and whenever and you know, all of these, so we'll just do it. All of these men were apostles in the church and held a certain authority in the church such that when they baptized, it was an expression of what the church as a whole was doing. This is why I wouldn't encourage you to take your kids home and, you know, if they profess their faith, I wouldn't encourage you to just baptize them then and there by yourself. But bring them to the church. Because baptism is a church thing. Because when we are baptized... Part of what's happening is we are being admitted into the church. We're saying, this is where I belong, because this is the faith that I have. There are no private baptisms. I spoke to somebody once who said, I'd like to be baptized. And I said, that is so wonderful. Let's talk about what that will look like, how we can prepare you for that, and how we will get that done. They said, well, I was hoping that we could just kind of like sneak off and do it. And I said, I'm really sorry. But we would never, ever do that. Because we, you have a whole new family who wants to celebrate your joy with you. And because you need these witnesses so that you will keep your baptismal promises. God's favorite analogy, his favorite metaphor for his relationship with his people is marriage. And in marriage, we always have witnesses. Because we are making foundational, permanent promises to each other. And those witnesses are responsible to help us keep them. Whenever I do a wedding, uh, at the rehearsal dinner, I always gather the whole bridal party together. And I say, you, men and women, bridesmaids and groomsmen, who are going to stand up front with these two, you are not here just to look good. You are here because you have a significant relationship with these people. And you are going to witness their vows. And you are going to hold them accountable to them and encourage them to keep them until death do them part. That's your job. That's the church's job in baptism as well, to celebrate all that baptism means and then to hold accountable the people who make those promises and who undertake that symbol.
So here's the last thing I, I want to talk about this morning. Baptism is a one-time thing. We don't rebaptize here. And the reason is because sometimes we come to our baptism and we don't do a very good job of meaning it. I know sometimes some of you here may have been baptized because you wanted to get married. And before the pastor would marry you, you needed to be baptized. And that was the whole reason you believed that you underwent that baptism. Sometimes for some of us, we feel like, uh, gosh, you know, I've wandered really far away from my faith. I think, I think that I need to get baptized again. You know, to, symbol, to, to tell everyone what God has done in my life. It, that makes sense on a lot of levels, doesn't it? But here's why we wouldn't do that. You may not have come to your baptism understanding what it was that you were doing. But you were not outside of God's providence and purpose for you in that moment. Maybe you didn't mean your baptism, but God did. Maybe you weren't faithful to keep your baptism, but God was. And if we get baptized again, what we are saying is, you know, God didn't keep his promises. I need to do something more because I don't, I don't feel right or I didn't act right or I didn't do the right things. We're actually, in a sense, despising what God had done. When people, and this has happened, when people have come to me and have said, I want to be baptized again, I've said, actually, I think what you want to do is you want to remember your baptism. You want to bring those elements out again and acknowledge, I didn't mean it, but God did. I don't need to be baptized a second time because that first baptism took. That's why I'm here today. But I do need to reaffirm my part in my baptism again. I need to declare my faith again before God's people and have that accountability. I need to be reconnected to the church again because I was the problem in that relationship. And so we bring out the water. And we're going to actually give you an opportunity to do exactly... to. Go through this in just a moment. We bring out the water to remember what God has done. We reaffirm our baptismal promises. I'm going to follow Jesus all my life long with everything that I have. And we worship God in that. And we encourage each other in it. If you've been baptized before, that baptism took. God doesn't start something and forget about it or fail to finish it. So here is how your baptism will continue to make a difference in your life today. First, would you just spend some time reflecting on your baptism? I came and I did this, but more importantly, God brought me and did this. And what he started, he will not fail to finish. Remember that your baptism was willed by God. You couldn't have done it otherwise. Secondly, your baptism is the promise that sin will not master you. And it's that promise made tangible. Now, in our tradition, we do immerse people, of course. That's obviously something we can do and we love to do. But 
it's not a great thing to immerse babies. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, and as a matter of fact, in the Didache, which is a first century Christian church manual of like, here's how you should worship. The Didache is not scripture, but it is wisdom from the first century church. And I, I should have printed out the exact quote here, but basically what the Didache says is, hey, find cold running water and dunk someone in it. It's not because the pastors were really mean, like let's you know, get them, because they had to get in the water too. But it's because that coldness is that refreshingness and the runningness carrying away our sin. The symbolism of it is powerful. So, but if you can't find cold running water, you know, find running water. If you can't find running water, find stagnant water. And if all you got is a puddle, like just get people as wet as you can. Because the important thing is the God who, has a, who is at work. Peter, uh, when he talks about baptism in his letters, he actually talks about how baptism is the washing with water. And you and I know, I mean, we take showers, right? At least I hope you take showers. And when we do this, you know, you don't have to actually put your head under water all the way to be washed clean. The same thing, baptism and what it represents and symbolizes, just get as wet as you can. Now, I would love to actually build a baptismal. I don't know where we would put it. <laughs> because I would love to baptize here. But if we got to go to Lisa's hot tub, man, I'm so glad she, she suggested the hot tub because that was cold water. And whatever the Didache says, I was going to be uncomfortable. But when, whether it's we go to Lisa's hot tub across the street or a swimming pool somewhere, we go to the river or to the lake, the important thing is not primarily where the water was or what kind of water it was, but the God who works. Your baptism is the promise that sin will not master you, made tangible. You are washed clean. Your baptism was also God's promise to you. It was God's promise to you, as we've been talking about, but it's also your promise to God to be his forever. And sometimes it's good to be reminded we made that promise, isn't it? Today, I don't really feel like living up to my promise. I'm speaking hypothetically. I always feel like living up to my promises. Nah, you, it's good you laughed. I was joking. There are days I have to remind myself to keep my promises. It doesn't come naturally. My baptism helps me in that. I got up in front of all of those people even if you were an infant. By the way, in, in our tradition, when we baptize infants, the expectation is that when God has completed that work and brought our children to faith, they will then complete their own baptism by standing in front of the church, the water standing here just like this, and they will confess their faith to the whole congregation of God's people. Their baptism's not done until they've done that. They don't have to be baptized a second time because that first one took, like we've been talking about. We expect them to acknowledge, we expect God to bring them to a place where they will acknowledge, it's done. I've got my faith too. 